this autumn at Kenilworth Union, we're preaching this sermon series called The Wizard of Uz, which is about the book of Job from the Hebrew Bible. Today's lesson is from chapters 2 and 3. Now when Job's three friends heard of all Job's troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his own house, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They met together to go and console and comfort him. And when the friends saw Job from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept aloud, tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. The friends sat with Job on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, Let the day perish in which I was born, and the night that said, A baby boy is born. Let that day be darkness. No one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Job's friends don't come off too well in this story, do they? They do many things wrong, but a couple of very simple but important things they get right. First, they show up, right? They didn't have to come. They could have stayed home. They could have sent a Hallmark card or dialed up FTD and sent some flowers or given a generous donation to Job's church in memory of his 10 dead children. But no, they show up. Now, all of this is a little bit of guesswork, this geography. We don't know anything about the land of Uz. It may be a mythic land akin to its phonetic cousin, the land of Oz. But if it exists in the Middle East, it's not in Judea and Palestine. All the names in Job are non-Jewish. So if they live today, we'd probably call them Arabs. They're from east and south of Palestine and Judea. They live in the Arabian Desert today. We'd call them Arabs. The uh, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar might have come from 300 miles away. It would have taken them two weeks to make this journey. And so when we're looking at the book of Job, we're seeking to answer the question, what is the answer to the problem of evil? These guys say, we are. We're the answer to the problem of evil. The great Job scholar Norman Hobble says, when we lose our God, sometimes we discover our friends. The ministry of friendship, he says, the ministry of friendship is not judged by our capacity to defend God's ways or to explain God's teachings, but by our ability to stand with a broken one against the insidious forces that array against him in the world and to believe in that person no matter what. I love the way he talks about that, the ministry of friendship. Our task is to believe in that person no matter what. So that's the first good thing the friends do. They show up. The next thing they do right is, when you get there, shut the hell up. Sometimes there's nothing to say. Go anyway. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had the good sense to sit there with their friend on the ash heap for, get this, seven days and seven nights. And the text tells us no one said a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very great. 
The greater the suffering, the fewer the words, yes? It's our tendency to think of evil as a problem to be solved when really it's often a mystery that demands silence. We shouldn't try to turn an absurdity into a rationalization. First, it's not helpful, and second, it's impossible. So last week, you discovered that I love anagrams. And if you didn't already know it, you found out last week, you were reminded that Satan is an anagram of Santa, and Britney Spears is an anagram of Presbyterians. So it's clear that not all anagrams are helpful, but some are. Do you notice, for instance, that silent is an anagram of listen? Such a simple thing, listening, but so few of us are any good at it. Franklin Delano Roosevelt used to say that no one, no one listens to a thing the President of the United States says. He would have all these meet meet and greets at the White House. He would meet scores and hundreds of people, and not one of them heard a thing he said because they were too nervous or they were thinking about what they were going to say back to him. And so to test this theory, FDR at these meet and greets would sometimes, as these scores or hundreds of people would come forward and shake his hand, he would murmur, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And invariably, to a person, they would say, very good, Mr. President. Well done, Mr. President. I'm on your side, Mr. President. But one guy said, without a beat, one guy was listening, and without a beat, he said, well, I'm sure she had it coming to her, Mr. President. I don't know why we should think this ministry of friendship, ministry of listening, ministry of silence should be so important. One doctor remembers something that happened 20 years before he tells this story. He was a young man, still an intern. One night he was on call at the hospital. He was in the intern's on-call room trying to get some sleep. But at 2 a.m., a nurse paged him looking for some sleeping medication for an elderly man who had an infection. And the droll doctor declaims, imagine that, somebody having trouble sleeping in a hospital. Hospital, that never happens. So the guy says, you know, I'm, I'm not asleep anyway. Interns never sleep except in lectures and sometimes in the hospital cafeteria. I'm not asleep. So instead of ordering up the medication, he goes to visit the, hosp- the, the patient in his room. And he pulls up a chair close to the patient's bed. And he finds out that this older patient is actually a Hungarian-American. He was from Budapest. And until 1939, he was a lawyer specializing in international law. But then when World War II started, he got drafted into the army. And before the war was over, he served in, get this, six different armies in Europe. Both sides, Axis and Allies. And the last army he served with was the United States Army. So when the war was over, he immigrated to the United States, became a an American citizen, and eventually a a librarian at a law school. And so the young intern pulls up a chair and talks for hours to this elderly patient. They share some burnt coffee, and the older patient tries to teach some Hungarian jokes to this young American doctor. And a few of them are in Ukrainian and Polish. Most of the jokes, of course, are about the communists. And it takes the older patient a long, long time to teach these jokes to an American intern when these jokes come from a different culture 
and a different language. But when the intern gets the jokes, they both laugh long and hard together. So they talk for hours, and finally the old man says, I'm tired. And the doctor uh, turns out the light and leaves the room, and the old man falls asleep, sleeps the whole night through, feels a lot better in the morning, and is eventually released from the hospital. But the doctor says, that happened 20 years ago, and I still remember it. I still remember how many KGB agents it takes to screw in a light bulb. And I can say to your health in seven different Eastern European languages, and you'd be surprised how often that comes in handy. So, what have we learned from all this? We've learned about the, loquas- the limits of loquacity and the loveliness of listening. It's when they start talking that they start to mess everything up. They do more harm than good. All they have to offer, Job's friends have to offer Job, are the hackneyed bronides of shallow religion or of traditional theology. You know, in, in fact, at one point in the story, one of Job's friends says to him, You're a jerk, Job. That's not an exact translation, but it'll do. You're a jerk, Job, and God should have clobbered you even harder than God already did because you deserve it. You just want to slap them, these friends. One last thing, and then I'll quit. Maybe I've told you this story before, but I love this story. The story's about uh, Amelita Gallicurzi, the great Italian coloratura soprano who entertained us from the stage of the Metropolitan Opera House in the early years of the, the last century. I found out this week that Amelita Gallicurzi actually debut, made her American debut here in Chicago with the Chicago Opera Association. She debuted here with Gilda from Rigoletto. And the acclaim from critics and audiences alike was so loud and long that she ended up staying here for eight years singing with the Chicago Opera Association before she moved along. And she tells the story about one, after a performance one night, after an opera probably at the Metropolitan, she was relaxing in her dressing room and she hears a knock on the door and exhausted and resigned, she drags herself to the door expecting to find one of the hordes of young singers who are always coming to her for encouragement and advice and connections. And when she opens the door, there's a young, nervous woman standing there clutching a tiny bunch of roses. And the soprano takes the roses from the nervous young woman and invites her in, and she says, well, go ahead. And this nervous young woman gets even more nervous. She says, excuse me, ma'am? Amelita Gallicurzi says, go ahead. Do do you sing? She's scared now. No, ma'am, I don't sing. The soprano points to a piano in the corner. Do you play? And she's real scared now. She finally says, no, ma'am, I don't play. And then the soprano says, well, what do you do? And the young woman says, madam, I only listen. The soprano's features soften. And she finally says, Oh, I'm terribly sorry, my dear. I'd quite forgotten that there were people left who just listen. Yes. 
When life is cruel and fate attacks and God seems poised against you and the very universe itself begins to crumble around you and you begin to curse the day you were born and only wait to die, just remember that sometimes you don't need an answer. Sometimes all you need is a friend. And sometimes that's all we get. And sometimes it's enough. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you.